Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. A lot of people have been trying to hate on the high yield bond market for years. They've been saying this area is inflated. It is going to be uh, poised for a big fall. The result this year so far has been a 10% gain, the best return for the first six months of a year since 2009 when we were climbing out of a financial crisis. Joining us to talk about this sector, Bill Zox. He is Chief Investment Officer of Fixed Income at Diamond Hill Capital Management. Thank you so much uh, for being with us today. I want to start with just a broad question. How much more upside is there left in the U.S. high yield bond market right now? Yeah, there, there's very little upside left. It's more about uh, treading water right here and, and earning your coupon for the back half of the year. So, all right, but we are, again, we're, as Lisa suggested, we've had a great run here uh, in the high yield. We're 10 plus years into this economic cycle. Are there any sectors that you're overweight or underweight, given where we are in, this, in the cycle here? Yeah, I mean, one interesting sector that's still under a cloud, but a different cloud than the equity markets are focused on would be pharma in the high yield space. Uh, the, the valuations are very much washed out. Yesterday's deal uh, with Allergan could be uh, a sign that that uh, people are starting to take notice of those valuations. And is that simply because of the, the regulatory overhang of the sector? I think that's that's I'm now the businesses have been weak, but they're starting to, to bottom out. But the primary issue on valuation today is the uh, political overhang, for sure. Although there are other challenges, too. I'm thinking of like Teva, for example, the biggest generic maker, uh, and their bonds have been beaten up. They're an incredibly leveraged company, and they haven't really seen the same kind of pricing power that they had in the past, and they faced a lot of headwinds. I mean, is that an area where you'd be willing to go, or are you looking more toward uh, U.S.-focused areas that have been hit by speculation about policy? No, I think that is one that, that it makes sense to dip your toe into. Teva. Yes. Okay. Really interesting to see that there is some opportunity there. Are there any places that you're selling right now? Well, I, uh, 30% of the U.S. high yield market right now has a maturity greater than five years and a yield to worse below 5%. That part of the market gives people comfort in that they, it's defensive, but the price is just too high. I think that's an area that you actually have to be selling right now. You know, one of the areas that's just been a huge issuer uh, has been kind of the greater communication space, you know, AT&T, Comcast, things like that. And there's so much technology change going on. And there's some uh, M&A activity in this space. How do you guys feel about the communications sector? Big issuers. Yeah, I mean, in the high yield market, you're really talking about Sprint and T-Mobile. And uh, whether that deal gets approved or not, Sprint will be under severe pressure if that deal does not get approved. Uh, probably a, a very high probability that they file for bankruptcy. In the investment grade space, uh, there's a lot of pressure on AT&T and Verizon. I mean, th those businesses are, are 
very mature right now, and they're, they're d- tough, capital-intensive businesses. So the picture that you're painting right now, which is security selection, treading water, coupon collecting, for a firm that oversees $23 billion, and I'm looking right now at the inflows into the high-yield sector, they have been escalating uh, significantly. Does that concern you, given the fact that there just aren't that many opportunities out there to put that money to work uh, in, in a way that you think might be prudent? Well, if we were too big and I had to put those inflows to work and in a relatively less liquid, high-yield market, I would be concerned. But we're very disciplined in terms of our capacity, so the inflows have been steady but not at all difficult for us to put to work. We're hearing more and more uh, from economists, investors, strategists about rising odds of a recession mid-next year. Is that something you're thinking about as you think about your portfolio? Well, I think the treasury market is is the best signal of that right now. And we're discounting three rate cuts between now and the end of the year. And to me, that's kind of on the precipice of that. That's probably still consistent with insurance against too low inflation, but anything more than that. And now the treasury market is discounting a much higher probability of recession. So we're, we're clo- I'm close to being concerned about that, but not quite yet. Uh, are you more concerned about the longer term for the high yield bond market or the private debt markets right now? Yeah, I think that the the private debt markets probably have grown much more rapidly. The, the high yield market, although flows have been strong this year, it's actually down in size over the last three years or so with the loan market and then the private debt market increasing in size. So I think that investor expectations in the private loan market are probably more out of whack with reality than what you would see in the high yield market. And how significant is the risk that you see in, say, a recession? I mean, are we looking at just normal declines that are, you know, not necessarily super painful, but, you know, are declines? Or are we talking about something that's more substantial than that? Yeah, I mean, leverage finance is extremely resilient. We saw that in the financial crisis. Spreads blew out in uh, you know, a year and then, but mostly in the three months after Lehman Brothers filed uh, to over 2,000 basis points, but high yield was back above its high water mark in the fall of 2009. So it's a very resilient asset class. Each sector in leverage finance can pick up the other. So I don't think it's going to bring the economy down or anything like that. Bill Zox, thanks so much for being with us. Bill is a chief investment officer of fixed income for Diamond Hill Capital Management, about $23 billion under management. He's based in Columbus, Ohio, the Ohio State University. I don't know why you guys say it, the Ohio State, but it sounds good. Uh, we'll, we'll go with it. Traders are preparing for the onset of G20 talks. And uh, as one guest on Bloomberg Television said this morning, it really is the G2 meeting because really we're looking at (laughs) Xi Jinping and President Trump uh, of China and the U.S. getting together and coming to some sort of ceasefire, maybe perhaps. To set the stage, I'm very pleased to say we have Leland Miller with us, Chief Executive Officer, China Beige Book uh, International in New York. He's joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Leland, uh, just to set the stage for these discussions between uh, Presidents Xi Jinping and Trump, what is the economic backdrop, in particular, of China right now? 
Sure. So people have been very gloomy over the last several months. One, because trade talks haven't gone well, but also you've had pieces of official data that have come in that haven't made people very happy. And then there's rumors of trouble within the financial system. So a lot of pessimism out there. Our new Q2 data, which was uh, released this morning, is actually more optimistic on that. So from a top line perspective, Q2 improved over Q1, which I don't think many people expected. And then on a sectoral uh, perspective, manufacturing and retail were the two co-leaders. So a lot of people probably assume manufacturing is under fire. That's true because of the trade war, but there was evidence of very strong policy support. So manufacturers borrowed more and they borrowed at the cheapest rates. This is the government stepping in. And retail also did relatively well. So we uh, there's some, some worries on inventory, but the, 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 the key metrics for those two sectors in particular were upbeat, hiring was upbeat, which means the trade war hasn't hit China where it hurts yet. Uh, and overall, I think that there was improvement in the economy. How about the shadow banking situation that had been on the downside as China had begun to delever over the last several years? What's the status there? Well, when people heard the term deleveraging over the last several years, uh, they assumed that China was actually actively deleveraging. I mean, the government was saying it was doing that. China was never deleveraging. It was doing some aspects of financial uh, deleveraging, and in particular, they were cracking down on shadow finance. That's something that's crystal clear in our data. So for the past two to three years, we've seen shadow finance crack down on, a much lower share of overall borrowing over time, and uh, most of that borrowing going from off-balance sheet to on-balance sheet. The borrowing wasn't, there wasn't less borrowing, but it was going from the shadows to the on-balance uh, balance sheet where it could be where it's more transparent and, and more regulated. Well, that just reversed completely this quarter. We saw an explosion. I think explosion is the right word for this uh, of shadow banking in Q2. It was the highest one quarter jump we've seen in shadow banking usage in the history of China Beige Book Survey. So what clearly is happening here, Q1 was a big credit quarter for China. They made a decision that they were going to create a cushion for the economy in a worst case scenario for the trade war, prepare for the downside. And Q2 was an expansion of that. Uh, Almost as much borrowing overall, almost as aggressive uh, uh, diminishment of, of, of rejection rates, et cetera, but an expansion of shadow banking. So it's really amazing what the Chinese have done since the fourth quarter in the credit side. Leland, I want to just highlight this point once again, because this seems to be a really big deal. You did just put out this early look brief of the uh, Q2 Chinese economy. The fact that shadow banking activity increased at the fastest pace, quarter over quarter, since China Beige Book began in 2010, seems significant. What is the potential risk here? I mean, how close are we to the consequences of this? Because it is a pretty closed economy. So some people say it's contained in terms of riskiness. Well, there's a reason that the Beijing leadership cracked down on shadow banking several years ago, because they said this is an enormous vulnerability. It operates outside of most rules. It operates uh, in a very opaque manner. Uh, There's important parts of shadow finance for the economy, but there's also Ponzi schemes, and there's no real way to, uh, to control this unless we shine a light on it. Now, they have been doing more and more and more to crack down on shadow finance for years, and what they're essentially doing right now is just throwing that all out. You know, the Trump trade war is is such a priority to make sure you don't look weak in the face of that. And in order to guard your downside, if this goes wrong, uh, they have essentially said we're going to we're going to forget about the long term consequences, which could hit 
in the short term or medium term or long term. It's an unclear how long the, a, you know, a ticking fuse they have on this, but they decided that's not the priority. The priority is to make sure that we're getting credit to everybody, that we have stronger growth numbers. And as a result, they've tossed out some of the good work they've done over the past few years. All right, let's turn our attention to the G20. In about an hour, President Trump will board Air Force One for Osaka. What is, in your mind, a realistic expectation for the G20 or G2? Right. Markets have been much too bearish on Osaka for weeks and weeks because after President Trump implemented tariffs back in May, there was this belief due to the coverage uh, that the two sides were hardening and that China was preparing for the long war and singing patriotic songs. And, you know, the U.S. was was led by tariff man who wanted to lead the crusade against China. And, you know, the two, you know, two sides had nowhere to go except uh, farther apart. This was never true. Nothing has fundamentally changed since the tariffs were raised, with the exception of some crack, some technology company crackdowns that are going to be used as trade fodder, uh, trade shits in, in term in, with President Xi. So we are not at a deal yet, but the the atmosphere for Osaka is one of the White House clearly wanting a reset of talks. They're willing to punt the last tranche of tariffs in its entirety to make that happen. They're willing to give assurances on Huawei that'll be part of a final deal. All the music that she wants to hear. Uh, and in return, the, the, the Chinese have to say, we will return to the base text uh, and we will work from that a base text that was about 95% done, not 90%, as Secretary Mnuchin said. So assuming that the Chinese go along with this, the, the president wants to ride this out, and we're going to see uh, quite, a, quite a positive solution from a deal standpoint at Osaka. Really? So you think it's not just going to be uh, the, the, uh, the fact that trade tensions aren't going to escalate, but there actually will be a resolution? I don't think there's going to be a resolution. That there's not going to be a final deal. They're not ready to do a final deal. But if they don't get along, you're going to see uh, 25% tariffs on all $500 billion starting July 1st. And that was a real possibility. As a matter of fact, markets were rather scared a few weeks ago that this was a becoming more and more of a possibility. Look, that is not on the table right now. They have not been wargaming that possibility internally. They want to reset. So I think that the fact that this continues on may not be seen as, bull, as, as bullish because in some ways, you know, we're just getting tired of right. this entire exactly. charade. At the same time, this looked like it was going in the wrong direction and it was accelerating yep. in the wrong direction. That wasn't true, but now markets are correcting themselves and, and they will realize that this has got, uh, that there is a clear glide path to a deal if the two sides decide they want to get there. We'll see about that this week. Hopefully some movement there. Leland Miller, CEO of the China Beige Book International, joining us in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.
Today starts the two-day extravaganza of Democratic debates, including 20 candidates to become uh, the lead in the contest against President Trump. Joining us now, Tim O'Brien, I'm so glad to say, executive editor for Bloomberg Opinion, joining us here in our Interactive Brokers studios, always with fresh perspective in all things politics and certainly President Trump. I'm just wondering, are we looking at a circular firing squad tonight? That's a great question, Lisa. I, you know, we'll see what happens when all these folks get on stage. It's a lot of people. But I don't think the spirit of this is uh, they want to try to assassinate each other. Uh, they clearly need to get uh, Biden out of their ways to some extent. Joe Biden hasn't had to put much effort into making public statements around things. He's, he's stepped in it a few times when he has, but he's clearly the front runner. So I think the extent to which uh, the people on stage tonight, which Biden won't be there tonight, he'll be there tomorrow, they need to define themselves in opposition to Joe Biden. And then I think the second step is in opposition to President Trump. And, and I think they don't really see a need to define themselves in opposition to one another. So do you think that beginning tonight and through the uh, all of the debates coming up, do you think the strategy will be for these candidates to focus on President Trump, attack uh, President Trump per se, or maybe step back and maybe try to differentiate themselves, define their own policies? And you know, Paul, I think I think, you know, I'm not a political consultant, but I think you know, in the media, we do know when things gain traction and when people start paying attention to things. And I think each of these candidates is going to have to say because they're going to have a limited amount of time. What can I say that will get picked up after the debates are over and give me the kind of follow up where I can get asked onto other shows and I can begin to define myself in front of voters? Because it's going to be very hard with this many people for any of them to really stand out. And one question I have is how much to the left is the Democratic Party swinging? And do we have a sense of just where uh, what's gaining traction so far and what that means about the direction of the party? Well, you know, I think the Democrats have a similar dynamic uh, as the as the GOP does, where you've got, you know, the, the left wing of the Democratic Party is pushing for bolder policy proposals in the same way that the populist wing of of the GOP is. Uh, I think um, I think the 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 Democrats have to figure out what they can put in front of a national block of voters and make palatable. And I think traditionally in national elections, that's been a middle of the road kind of program. Uh, however, there's very, you know, we're in an era where there's a lot of wealth inequality. Um, I think the Trump presidency has brought intolerance and racial insensitivities to the fro and to the fore. And I think that that's going to, uh, those are issues the Democrats have to address. So, Tim, I've got a million things to talk about here, but let's shift gears to the Mueller hearings. Uh, it now looks uh, like uh, Mr. Mueller is going to appear before uh, Senate um, or before Congress next month. How important do you think his appearance and his testimony is? I think the theatrics of it really matter, Paul. I think most Americans haven't read the Mueller report. It's a long, dense thing that, that we in the media have consumed. Apparently, the president hasn't read it. Um, and I think the, the, the congressional hearings offer this easily digestible visual way for average Americans across the country to connect with what Mueller believes that report was about. And I think the second reason that's important is I think Bill Barr uh, really was uh, politically adept 
and and shrewd about trying to define it before the report even came out. And he had a lot of free airtime as attorney general to define the report in a way that I think wasn't accurate. I think it was designed to protect the president. Uh, I don't think Barr was hiding the fact that that's what he was up to, but that doesn't mean it was an accurate reflection of what the report said. And so this is a moment for that to happen. I guess that one question I have is uh, there there have been a number of surveys that show that uh, the bulk of Americans are sick of the Mueller report and aren't necessarily trained on it. And that basically they think that probably President Trump did some things that were wrong, but they kind of just want to move on. And I'm wondering what the political risk is for harping on this point, even if there is some credence to uh, to the view that there that there are aspects of this report that have not been highlighted. Well, because I think that there's more than politics at work here. We're a nation of laws. And I think one of the dangerous things that emerged here is that I think the president and his attorney general have, have, have defined him and the presidency is above the law. And we live in a country in which we believe no one is above the law. And I think that people on both sides of the political aisle should find common ground around that principle, even if it comes at a political cost. We've had other moments in our history where politicians have taken unpopular stands or taken stands on issues that voters don't care about in order to further the good, uh, the good, the goodwill and the well-being of the nation. So do you think the Democrats will use the Mueller testimony as perhaps a step towards impeachment? I have no idea. You know, clearly Nancy Pelosi does not think impeachment right. is smart politically. I think there's law and order types and and other principled people in the in the party who think that it, it should happen regardless. I'm wondering, considering the fact that you actually have read through this report, what are the areas that you think are going to get uh, sort of highlighted as breaking the law moments that could be uh, exactly speaking to what you, what you just said? Yeah, I've now read it twice, I'm sorry to say. And um, I think the second half of the report on obstruction of justice is glaring. I think you can't read that report and not believe that there were very definable instances in which the president tried to disrupt the Mueller investigation and uh, Jim Comey's investigation, uh, that he tried to pull other people in his orbit to do this. It was very bald face. I don't think there's any doubt around it. I think the only reason Bob Mueller decided not to indict the president is because he believed that the Justice Department had a rule preventing him from doing so. I think the language in the report clearly uh, laid out that he believed it was up to the Congress to decide what to do next, but that he wasn't willing to exonerate the president from having committed no crimes. What would be a successful outcome for the Democrats with, the, with this testimony? What are they really looking for? Uh, you know, I think there I think there I don't know. I don't know. If there's a unified goal there. I think there's some that would like to see it, as you asked earlier, Paul, about is, you know, to make it a first step on the way towards impeachment. I think there's others that would be satisfied for it simply to raise doubts uh, among the electorate about the president and his ethics and, and the way he operates. How much support is there from the Republicans to defend him, regardless of uh, of what comes out? I think there's like 1000 percent support from the Republicans <laughs> to get in the way of this. Yeah, I think that they I think he's already got, you know, last night, Mark Meadows went on Fox and said that if Bob Mueller thinks he's going to come in here and uh, not get cross examined by us, you know, he's got another thing coming as if, you know, Bob Mueller as a veteran prosecutor would really worry about a junior congressman's ability to cross examine him in a public forum. I don't think Bob Mueller will break a sweat during that hearing. Uh, but clearly, Mark Meadows, Jim Jordan, there's other people who have argued beyond the report, I think, to defend the president. Tim O'Brien, thank you so much. 
He has a way of phrasing things. I know. Tim O'Brien is is really uh, a wordsmith beyond wordsmiths. Yes. He's fabulous. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> Thank you. Tim O'Brien, executive editor, Bloomberg Opinion, uh, joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. If you look at home builder stocks, they have taken quite a fall with the biggest two day decline in the subsector of the S&P 500 since December. The question is, how far have we gotten already in the slowdown in the housing market? Joining us now, Logan Motoshami, he's senior loan officer at AMC Lending Group, joining us from California. Logan, thank you so much for joining us. I want to start there. How concerning is the slowing uh, housing data that we're getting? How concerning is it to you? Well, last year, uh, toward the end of 2018, uh, the new home sale market was flashing a recession. You know, uh, uh, the builder's confidence index was collapsing. Monthly supply spiked up to levels in 1994, and uh, new home sales were trending negative. So I was, you know, calling for, hey, this is not a good data line. But back then I said new home sales are still too low. Don't call a peak yet. We should be able to get back. Uh, uh, get monthly supply back down to below six and a half months. Now, we've done that this year, and new home sales are still uh, beating my estimates for the year, but we simply have too much supply of new homes for the builders to really start accelerating construction, especially on single-family homes now. And I think that's the problem. And I think the market is starting to get a, get a whiff of this, that if, if we are seven days away from really having the longest economic expansion ever with mortgage rates under 5% since 2011, and we have a really hard time pushing housing starts to above 1.4 million on permits, there's a problem for the builders, not just now, but going out for maybe two or three more decades. Can they really provide a product that would facilitate enough demand to keep monthly supply low enough for them to make money and to, for, for housing starts to keep on growing at, at an acceptable rate? And I, I've always argued this, they cannot compete with the bigger existing home sale marketplace. So, Logan, I want to get a sense of kind of the new home sales market versus existing. How's that shaping up right now? Even though existing home sales are down this year, which was my forecast, sales are down a little bit, inventory up a little bit, it's still outperforming as it has this entire cycle. New home sales basically had the worst demand curve ever in U.S. history. So existing home sales is doing better in my mind. New home sales has done one positive thing. It brought monthly supply back down to below six and a half months. Uh, sales trends are still running uh, uh, positive. But if we get above six and a half months again on monthly supply, that is a red flag. And this is one of the reasons that we talked about this last year on this show, why housing starts in 2019 is a question mark. We're still running negative year over year on housing starts. But comps on all housing data are going to get a lot easier in the second half of the year. So Things should look a little bit better on the year-over-year averages, but uh, simply there's not enough demand in the new home sales market to warrant more construction, and the builders are more cautious now than ever at any time in the cycle. I'm trying to understand how this bleeds through to housing values going forward, because we have seen a decline in certain coastal cities uh, due to uh, salt deductions and other issues that might have arisen and just the general inflation and valuations there. But what about throughout the nation, given the fact that mortgage rates are so low and heading lower? Adjusting to inflation, home prices should be flat in some markets. They, they, they are negative. Uh, there's, there are homeowners that bought their homes last year, let's say early in spring, that are down year over year. This, to me, is a very 
healthy sign of the housing market, the existing home sales market, actually performing this function. You know, a little bit demand weakness, a little bit supply increase in certain areas where the supply is actually more, the rate of growth is slowing down. In some cases, people are, are, are down year over year. I think that's perfectly fine. I think so many people are in this housing bubble 2.0 mentality that they think that there's going to be just a an, another crash in prices. That's not how it works. You would need to really see a significant demand decrease from where sales are right now, even worse than the, the housing uh, uh, bubble crash, to get prices to really accelerate down on a national basis. So I think we're okay there. I think that's what's happening with the, in the home price market is positive in my mind. Uh, the it, median sales prices for the new home sale market following is a lot of that has to do more with the makeshift of smaller homes being part of the sales mix. We have we've seen some discounting by the builders, but nothing dramatic yet. I think that's where yeah, if you if you really want housing starts to to really kick up, uh, to provide more homes out there, you need you simply just need a lot more new home sales now than any other time in this cycle. Logan, are there any regions of the country that are surprising you with maybe with a little bit on the downside in terms of weakness? No, because the coastal areas and the high price areas, whenever mortgage rates get higher, uh, they see a, a, a demand hit. And I, I'm not a big fan of the salt deductions really impacting uh, the, the coastal areas. We just mortgage rates got up higher. This, the similar thing happened in uh, 2013 and 2014, actually. Uh, and here in California, sales are a little bit higher than what they were in 2014 when, when we saw the last dip and there was no salt problem back then. Uh, so right now, because mortgage rates are coming back down, it's stopped the supply bleeding. You know, we're, we're starting to see a little bit more demand pick up, take off a little bit of the supply. But again, these coastal areas, whenever mortgage rates go up to about 45 to 5%, they see an impact on demand. And that should be the case for some time now. Logan Motashami, thank you so much for joining us. Logan is a senior loan officer for the AMC Lending Group uh, based in Irvine, California. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.